Good morning. It's wonderful to be here to worship with all of you. And I'm, it's an honor to be able to read this, me- this message to you today. So it's from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, you have told us that the wise man is the one who builds his house upon the rock of your word. Storms will come, but when we stand firm in your word, we can stand firm with confidence, knowing that you are that foundation. We pray that you would build that foundation strong in us this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Uh, Through the years, I have by necessity, gotten fairly comfortable working on my car and my kids' cars. Uh, I think all three of our cars have more than 170,000 miles on them. Uh, so I'm out there with a wrench often doing stuff. Uh, alternators, water pumps, what else have we, all kinds of sensors and brakes. I do a lot of brakes. Usually it goes really well, not a problem. One exception, when I forgot to latch the hood on my son Caleb's car, and he went down the highway at 55 miles an hour to have it blow up and shatter his windshield. We're all entitled to one bad day, right? So, uh, uh, if I can find a YouTube video, and I have the tools, the right ones, I'll try it. We'll we'll see if we can get it figured out. Um, But if it takes a mechanic 30 minutes to do the job, it's going to take me two hours minimum. Partly because I just don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a mechanic. And partly because there's about an hour worth of setup before every job. Uh, Our garage is not a mechanic's shop. It's got Christmas decorations and boxes and bikes. and So i got to clear out some space because I don't want to knock over a whole roll of bikes while I'm taking a tire off. Uh, i got to find the right tools out of my mess of a toolbox, and that usually involves reorganizing all of my tools. Got to get my cup of coffee, because I can't do anything without a cup of coffee. And I got to get the right playlist. For car work, it's almost always classic rock. And now I'm ready to go. All that isn't the job, right? I haven't even touched the car yet. It's the job before the job. In the book of Nehemiah, we have been reading, and the narrative has been almost entirely focused on building the wall around Jerusalem. That is a big undertaking, a noble task that the people of Israel under Nehemiah's leadership threw themselves into. But it's really only the job before the job. If the book of Nehemiah and his story was just about building the wall, the book could end at chapter 6 because the wall is done. 
But God's goal for Jerusalem, his goal for Israel, wasn't just that it would be a strong, fortified city, or that it would be a a hub of economic activity again. His desire for them went beyond those physical, material things to spiritual things. God's intention was to build a strong and vibrant community that wasn't spiritually hollow, but that was spiritually alive and active because Israel was more than a political or economic entity. The people had done tremendous work. They had overcome through prayer and perseverance just overwhelming obstacles. So big were these obstacles that the nations around them recognized that this must be God's doing. They couldn't have done this on their own. But even that is not the full story. Nehemiah's story, again, it's not just about the safety and sec- Nehemiah's story, again, it's not just about the safety and security of the city, but about the renewal of a nation. Because Israel was the people of God, who God was in covenant relationship with. So how do you address the spiritual deadness, the spiritual hollowness? of a people? How do you move from a construction project to a revival? With the word of God. With the word of God. You give God's word space to do what his word does. Bring life into God's people. And that's what we see happening here in Nehemiah chapter 8. There's three things that I want us to pay attention to. Three things that God's word is doing in these few verses. Anne read, I think, four verses of that. The chapter, we're going to look at it at length, uh, but we're skipping a whole bunch of names. That's why I didn't have Anne read more than just those four verses, because there's a lot of names when you get into it. But three things that God's word does. First, God's word demands a response from God's people. God's word demands a response from his people. Here in Nehemiah chapter 8, the the people gather themselves and they send word to Ezra, the priest. Come and meet us at the water gate and bring with you the book of the law of Moses. I think it's really instructive that this was not a top-down revival. This wasn't Nehemiah, the governor, saying, hey, you know, we're having a meeting, better show up. It wasn't Ezra sending out a memo saying, hey, meet at the water gate. The people, the people were demanding to hear from God's word. They summoned Ezra the priest and said, bring the word with you. And they gathered as one people, men, women, and children. Or as the verse says, all those who could understand. In other words, everyone except the most itty-bitty of kids were a part of this long worship service. Six hours Men, women, and children. As 
Matt announced, we're stepping into a period of our church life where we're welcoming children into the service in the summers and once a month for our family worship services. That's an important thing to do as the family of God, to have the little ones with us. I know it's easier on parents not to have them in the service, right? So why? Why is it important to bring them in? It's certainly a pattern that you see all through the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 31, Joshua chapter 8, 2 Chronicles 20. Why? Because children are a part of the covenant community. They need to hear what being a part of God's people requires. They need to hear God's promises made to them as part of his people. Do they get it all the time? Of course not. I don't get it all the time, right? No. But they're with us and absorbing and learning from their parents. As their parents, mom stands as the word of God is read. Why did she do that? Dad teared up while the law was read. I've never seen dad cry before. What's going on? They take such care as the bread and the wine are passed. Why such reverence? They're learning. They're, they're catching these things as they're a part of the people of God gathered together in public worship. Now kids, I know listening to me or Bob is not the most fun 30 minutes of your week, right? You don't have to lie to me and tell me it is. I know it's not. But not everything that's good is fun. Uh, let me encourage you to think about it a different way. Uh, imagine your parents are invited to a famous person's house, someone in town who you just, you admire. Maybe it's the IU men's basketball team and Trace Jackson Davis is going to be there. Or it's the women's team and Grace Berger is going to be there. And it's a big party and your, your parents are invited. And you say to them, please take me. I want an autograph. I want to meet Trace Jackson Davis. I want... Okay, maybe you're not an IU basketball fan. And that's the closest thing to heresy I think I've said from the pulpit before. Maybe for you it would be someone like Taylor Swift. And you say, take me. You got invited to dinner at her house. Take me. I want to go. When your parents come to church, they're coming into God's house to meet with Jesus. And they're bringing you to be a part of that. Because they want you to meet Jesus with them. To be a part of that. Our services aren't usually six hours long, which is what this was. It might be today, but not quite. This isn't prescriptive, it's descriptive. Of a people who were hungry to hear more of the word of God. And the word of God in this 
service, this public worship service, is given a royal reception. The people are listening attentively. When Ezra opens the book of the law, the people stand in reverence. Sound familiar? Familiar? As he's reading, the people are shouting, Amen! Amen! Which is a way of agreeing with what is being said. It's saying, let it be so. And in verse 6, it says, They bowed low with their faces to the ground and worshipped. That's the proper response to God's word being read. Worship. We don't come to God's word so we can answer Bible trivia questions or so that we can write a paper. No, we come to encounter God and worship. And that's what the people did. The word demanded response and the people responded with attentiveness and reverence. Secondly, in this passage we see that God's word confronts the people and their sin. Let me read verse 9 one more time. Nehemiah the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. The priests were reading from the the books of Moses, explaining what was being said, maybe even having to translate, because The books of Moses were written in Hebrew, and these people had been living in Assyria and Babylon and Persia maybe their whole life. And so there was people kind of out among the crowd translating and uh, interpreting and explaining what was being said, and the people were weeping when they heard the law of God read. Maybe for the first time their understanding why they had been living in exile for so long. Because we had broke covenant so profoundly. Maybe they had a convenient way of blaming their grandfathers and fathers for the peril that had befell the nation. We went into exile because grandpa and dad broke covenant and worshipped idols. But now as they're hearing the law read, it's hitting them personally. We too are guilty of sin. We too have broke faithfulness with our God. And they're weeping. This is often what happens when God's people are confronted by the holiness of God. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, that famous vision of the seraphim, and he's in the throne room of God, and he cries, Woe to me, I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Peter gets just a glimpse of Jesus' holiness as Jesus performs a miracle, and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Here the people encounter God's holiness through his holy law, And they're crushed. And they're weeping. God's word exposes us to the holiness of God. And it becomes a looking glass. We see our reflection and our dirtiness. We see how we need to be cleansed, forgiven, made right. The word of God confronted the people in their sin, and they responded with sorrow and repentance. 
But the story doesn't end there. God's words comfort the people also. God's words comfort the people. Uh, This one took me a little while this week. Because the words of Nehemiah and Ezra and the priests were, this day is holy to the Lord. So don't weep. Don't mourn. And I was wrestling with that because that seems to be what happens when you encounter holiness. You weep. You mourn. Because you realize how unholy, how unrighteous, how sinful you are. But when you encounter God's holiness, his holiness is the sum of all of his perfections. Not just his justice and his wrath, but the sum of all his perfections, including his steadfast love. Including his unrelenting faithfulness. Including his mercy, his patience, and his amazing Grace. Holiness exposes sin, yeah, but that's only part of the story. Holiness also points us to his grace and his love and his mercy. Don't linger too long in grief over sin. Grief over sin is appropriate and it's good, but don't get stuck there. Don't slide into what some have called worm theology. Oh, woe is me, I am such a worm. Okay, go there, but move past that. The priests are pointing the people to the goodness of God. To merely point out sin by preaching law is to do half a job. Failing to comfort with God's grace is criminally negligent as a pastor. Yes, convict, but God's word brings comfort. The joy of the Lord, Nehemiah says in this passage, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Or a better translation, the joy of the Lord is our stronghold, our fortress, our refuge. Run to the joy of the Lord. Wallowing in sorrow over sin is like stopping on the drawbridge, heading into the fort. Don't stop there. Go all the way into the stronghold that is the joy of the Lord. Where you remember his faithfulness in forgiving your sins. Will you remember his presence with you currently? Nehemiah in this, you might just pass over it kind of phrase. He says, the Lord your God. This day is holy to the Lord your God. In other words, yeah, you sinned. Yeah, you broke covenant. But he's still your God. He hasn't abandoned you. Find joy in that. And find joy in what God is going to do. He's going to be faithful to his promises. The word of God comforted, and the people celebrated with a feast. Listen to these words. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this day is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat 
and to drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. If you get stuck in grief over sin, you don't understand the sum total of the words that God is speaking to you because he doesn't want you stuck in grief and mourning. But to experience the joy of the Lord and to come into that stronghold. So how does this story from 400 years before the birth of Christ translate to us today? Well, first, let me speak to us corporately as a church. As a church, I think we need to understand that God's goal for us is spiritual vitality, nothing less. I remember when I was finishing up seminary and beginning to send out resumes to churches, um, a, a, a professor and mentor of mine said to me, Dan, beware of churches with thick bulletins. I thought, why in the world? Thick bulletin means a lot's going on. And so we were talking about it, and he said, you know what? So many churches cover over spiritual hollowness with busyness. We're not spiritually alive, so let's add another program. Let's do another thing. He said, beware of that. He's speaking about the church of Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says to the church of Sardis, I know your reputation. You've got a reputation for being alive and vibrant, but you're spiritually dead. As a church, we have to be careful that we don't pay attention only to the externals, to the structures, to the programs. God wants spiritual vitality for us as a church, and we allow that to happen. We don't make it happen. We allow that to happen by giving God's word space in our church, by coming to God's word with the correct posture of reverence, of ready to obey, of attentiveness, and of worship, saying, meet us in your word, and we'll respond. That principle translates not just to us corporately, but to us individually, personally too. So personally, don't rest in material or physical well-being. Press on to spiritual health. Remember, just because everything in your life is going well, the checkbook is balanced, relationships seem to be hunky-dory, kids are healthy, you're just because those things are falling into line doesn't mean you've received everything God wants for you. He wants spiritual health. He wants your heart. It's so easy to rest content when everything is going well and think, hey, the wall is built, job done. No. Maybe job half done. Press on and ask God for spiritual health. And when things aren't going well, when the checkbook just doesn't make sense, when relationships are cracking and deteriorating, when health is ill, 
It's easy to look for material and physical relief and stop there. Don't. Don't. Ask God to do a work of revival in your heart. Does he care about those things? Yes, of course. He is a near God who cares about the number of hairs on your head. But he cares about your heart. And he wants spiritual life more than anything. So give God's word space in your life. Not just here on Sunday mornings. But give it space in your life daily. Where you go to God's word, not just as a chore to check off the list, but you go and say, search me, O God. Tell me if there's an offensive way in me. Go in reverence and responsiveness. And lastly, again, very personally, don't run when the word convicts. Lean in and hear those words of comfort. The law does a work of conviction, and that is good, that is healthy, that is part of the purpose of the law, to convict of sin. And when I say law, I don't mean just the Ten Commandments. I mean the law that is strewn all over the Old Testament and the New. Things like do justice and love mercy. I love preaching that passage, and then I think, wow, I'm not doing that enough. Or the command, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I think, oh, I fail at that daily. Or love the Lord your God. Great, I do that with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And uh, love your neighbor as yourself. All these commands, all this law can be crushing, can weigh us down. Recently I was, that's my fault, recently I was sitting with someone who, through some tears, said, I just don't deserve God. And my initial impulse was to heal that wound lightly and say, of course you do. When the law crushes me, my initial impulse is to heal my own wound lightly and say, yeah, but I'm not as bad as, or I do more than. Don't give in to that initial impulse. Because the truth is, no, none of us deserve God. None of us deserve his kindness. But that's only half the story. The other half is while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The ungodly were the beneficiary of the godly, God incarnate, going to the cross. The eminently worthy died for the unworthy. Let the law crush you because it points you to Jesus who turns the weeping into feasting, who turns the mourning into dancing, 
who turns sorrow into laughter, not with cliches, not with glib advice that the sun will come out tomorrow, but by sending his son to atone for that sin that grieves, to atone for that sin that separates, to atone for that sin that ruins. He sent his son to take that upon himself to make forgiveness as possible. Through Christ, you can experience the joy of the Lord and live in that stronghold of his goodness. Maybe today you've come to the point where you have been trying. Trying to be a better person. Trying to be good. Trying to keep law. And you feel the weight of your sin. It's weighing you down. And then you come to the cross. And you say, I let it go. I let Christ carry that for me. And I take on his righteousness. If you're feeling weighed down this morning by your sin, then I would encourage you to pray and ask the Lord to forgive that sin and to bring you the joy of the Lord that comes through Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. It is not always a comfortable word. It reminds us of the things that we do not want to be reminded of. It shows us dark parts of our hearts. But there, in the darkness, the light of your son, Jesus Christ, shines and pushes back the darkness, forgives the sin, removes the guilt. Father, we pray that we would find the stronghold that is the joy of the Lord, and that we would live there in your grace, by your mercy, through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.